think I'm doing those eyes. <laughs> I think I'm in love. It was terrifying. The pain, the, the fear of being eaten. I was drowning at the same time. I just accepted that I was going to die. Was there a bit of fandom for you when it came on? Oh, you huge. And I did not try to hide. <laughs> did not try to hide at all. Out of the box with Serge Negus on FBI. Massive thanks to Alex Pyfer and Abby Corner for Sydney Music and Culture News. If you missed anything she played, you can head to fbiradio.com to catch up on mornings or any other program on FBI Radio. Now, today you're in for a bit of a treat on the show because my guest, who you can hear coughing in the background there, who's come all the way in here with a flu, I know, she's a bloody Trojan, is actually the first Indigenous woman to serve in the House of Representatives, and she was also the first Aboriginal person to serve in the New South Wales Parliament. She is, of course, Wiradjuri woman and Federal Labor MP Linda Burney, a woman who continues to break down boundaries and represent minorities in places where, if we're going to be honest about it, still definitely don't have enough representation. Linda, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, sir. It's very nice to be here, and I'm sorry to everyone everyone about my flu, but it is what it is. (laughs) It is what it is. Everyone's been getting absolutely smashed by it. I had it last week, half of the ABC had it the week before. It's all insane. But look, you know, I'm... You grew up in a small country town in, in southwestern New South Wales, so I can imagine we're going to get a bit of maybe country music, you know, <laughs> a bit of that kind of ilk in there. But before we get to the music, though, I do want to know about your childhood because it wasn't a regular childhood. No, it wasn't. So I was... Um, it wasn't a regular childhood, but I didn't quite realise that at the time. I was actually raised by my great-aunt and uncle, whose names were Nina... Oh, her name was Letitia, but we called it Nina, and uh, Billy Lang, and they were brother and sister. And remarkably, they were born in the late 1890s, believe it or not. Um, And they were brother and sister. They were both spinsters. And they would have been in their early to mid-60s when they took me on as a very new baby. And remarkably, they were non-Aboriginal people. Mm-hmm. My mother was non-Aboriginal, my father was Aboriginal, but um, I didn't meet him until I was 28 years old. So for them to do that was extre- extremely brave and unusual. Um, in 1957, in a very small country town, and I'm sure that they uh, they they were... Um, they were made to feel that they'd done the wrong thing, but they they raised me. They raised me with strong values. And I often wonder uh, what would have happened to me if they'd not been there. And why do you think they took you on, given how intense it would have been for them? Because I have heard you describe it as, you know, being born Indigenous at that point in time was as much of a sin as being born out of wedlock. It was. I mean, I had the double, um, the double, the double deal of being an Aboriginal uh, child, non-Aboriginal mother, um, no Aboriginal father, no father on the scene. My mother wasn't married. Um, And in a small country town, that was shocking enough. But to be born Aboriginal as well was was doubly shocking. Um, And I've often thought about my great aunt and uncle. I mean, they... They were in their, as I said, their mid-60s. They'd never had children. They'd never married. And maybe that had something to do with it. Um, but but maybe they, they loved my mother very much and saw what sort of pain she was going to experience and wanted to uh, not have that for her. But whatever the reason was, it was a very brave and unusual thing to do. And, I mean, they must have been so bloody tough because you can only imagine the sorts of things that small little town gave to them, right? Oh, well, they did. I mean, you know, this, when I look back on it, I look back at the social um, ostracisation that I, I'm sure they experienced. We grew up in extremely humble circumstances, but most people in the town did. Um, and it wasn't that I didn't know my mother. She used to come and visit because her mother, my Uh, great-aunt's sister, my grandmother, lived next door. So I did know my mother, um, but uh, not well. And there was never an explanation given to me. There was was a silence about it all. And I think that was to do with the era and and the time. And so when was it, though, for you that you first kind of became aware of your Indigenous heritage? 
Well, it was when I was about four and a half or five. Um, this will sound so strange to the people listening to us, but you've got to imagine, everyone, this is a long time ago. Um, back when I was a child, there wasn't a lot of money and there was people didn't have cameras. I mean, you know, the, we, we walk around with smartphones now and take 3,000 pictures a day that no, you <laughs> yeah. never look at again. Exactly. But back, back in those days, there weren't a lot of cameras and there were photographers that would travel from town to town and knock on your door and offer to do family portraits. Um, and that's what happened. And I remember the photographs coming back and there were my my mother's sister's children, my cousins, all blonde and blue-eyed. And on the end um, of that row of children, there was a very, very dark, smiling little girl. Wow. And I thought, hmm, I don't look much like my cousins. <laughs> <laughs> How did and, you address it with them? Well, I, I, I just, it just rolled on. And, um, of course, there were snide things said to me by people in the town. I was teased by the kids about being a darkie and not having a father. And, um, you know, those were pretty tough times. But I do remember very clearly at the age of probably 12, uh, 12 and a half, 13, sitting on the front veranda of the old wooden, wooden house we were raised, I was raised in, uh, making a definite decision that I was, um, I was obviously Aboriginal and that was the path that I was going to follow. I was 12, 13. Wow. It was one of those moments in one's life that's a defining moment and I remember it really, really clearly. And so then at what point did you then go try and reconnect with your biological mother and father? Well, I'd known my mum, mother. She she used to visit. Um, and she subsequently married when I was four. And there were um, two brothers and two sisters from that marriage with um, my stepfather, whom I ended up developing quite a good relationship with. Um, but... <coughs> I guess I really started actively looking for my the Aboriginal side of my family when I was about twenty, nineteen or twenty, um, and it took you know up until I was twenty-seven before I met my father, and that was a pretty remarkable moment as well. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, he was um, he was um, an extremely handsome man. I remember I was. Uh, eight months pregnant with my son, my, my first child, and my cousin had came around. I'd, we'd started working out who some of the family was, and she came around. It was just towards evening, and she said, I've got someone for you to meet. And I put some shoes on, and we got in a car and drove. I can't remember where we drove. And um, my father walked out of a building um i think it was a conference center and he was um this incredibly good looking aboriginal man with a with a cowboy hat on and nice. he was a country and western singer and he got into the back of the car and i had a photograph of my mother at about the time that he knew her and i said do you know a woman called so and so he said no i don't my heart just dropped and then I showed him the photo and he just looked at it for a really long time, a really long time. Then he leant over and put his arms around me and said, I hope I don't disappoint you. Oh, my God. Yeah, and that then that, shivers, night, that night we went out to the old Anset Terminal and it was a beautiful red sunset. Um, and I found out I had ten brothers and sisters. Wow. And we'd all grown up 40 minutes apart. Wow, that's insane. I mean, how was that? What was the deep effect that that had on had on you? Was it was it a? I mean, were you able to get over that and see the joy of being disconnected once you reconnected? Well, was it, was um, it I went went home after that, and at one o'clock in the morning, I woke up in labour. So yeah, I got over it pretty quickly. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, talk about timing, right? Oh well, I'm sure it was the emotional. Yeah. Um, the emotion of meeting my father. And my son was came early, but um, 24 hours, 27 hours, he took a long time to come. I had my first child, and his name is Binny Dillenbarong, 
And Dirrenbarong means the red colours of the setting sun, which was what was happening when I met my father. It's amazing. Mm. Well, look, being a music show, we've got to get into the songs <laughs> now. And, um, well, there you go. Look at the first track, Red Dirt Girl. I mean, that's the segue is perfect. It's so perfect. tell us about this. Is Emma Lou Harris. Emma Red Lou Dirt Harris Girl. is yep. my famous, uh, my favourite um, artist. I, I don't listen to a lot of music, I have to admit. Every um, New Year's Eve, my resolution is to listen to more music, but I never get around to it. Great resolution. Um, but I, I know what I like, and Emmy Lou Harris is by far and away my favourite artist. And her uh, songs are beautiful, her voice is beautiful. Um, and um, I've been listening to her for 30 or 40 years now, and... Um, Red Dirt Girl I relate to very much. It's uh I'm not sure which of the two girls I am in <laughs> the um in the song but listen to it and you'll you'll hear the country girl in it. Without a sound 
You're listening to Out of the Box and FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today is Federal Labor MP Linda Burney, the first Aboriginal woman to serve in the House of Representatives. Now, after you finished school, you know, you went off to uni and you became a teacher and, and you taught in Western Sydney and you had a pretty amazing transition. But before that, though, there's one thing I do want to ask you about. There was a moment for you where you were at school and were compared to people living in the Stone Age. I want you to tell tell our audience that story. Well, I was in year seven. Um, um, we called it first form back then. And I was doing social studies. I was in the A grade, A stream of, of school. I was a very bright student. Um, and we were doing what they called the exotic people of the world. So we did the Bedouins, the Eskimos, and the Aborigines, and all of them, you know, all of them, um, not named properly, of course. But I remember when um, Miss Rigney, whom I think was a very good woman and a very good teacher, moved on to teach about the Aborigines, and it was an old school with a wooden floor. And I just wanted to turn into a piece of paper and slip through the cracks in that floor. I was made to feel so ashamed and so embarrassed by what was being taught, that Aboriginal people had no culture, had no technology, um, were aimless and basically, not basically, were the closest example to Stone Age man living on Earth today. That's wild. What year was this? Um, It was 19... Um, gosh, it must have been about 1971, See, it's not even that long ago, is it? Not really. It's wild. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, that story is just one that I feel like has to go across the airwaves <laughs> multiple times because it just highlights such a flaw in this country. But then, look, yeah, moving back into you. But the good thing is that that's not taught anymore. Yeah. That's changed. Thank you. And I think that that experience was one of the main motivating Factors for me wanting to become a school teacher. Okay, wow. And all the work that I did subsequently in curriculum development. So tell, tell us about that work. So I was um, a school teacher, as you said, then went into the Department of Education to develop policy, was involved in developing the first Aboriginal education policy in Australia. Wow. But did lots of work with teachers, and subsequently I became the president of a big non-government organisation called the New South Wales Aboriginal Education Consultative Group. And it provided advice to the New South Wales government on Aboriginal issues in education. And with that, I was appointed to um, what was called the Board of Studies, which developed all the curriculum and approved all the curriculum in in New South Wales. So had a huge influence on developing Aboriginal studies, Aboriginal perspectives, Aboriginal languages... So I'm sure that experience was a difficult one at the time, but set me on a path. Were there what sort of challenges did you face though when you were doing that? Did you have anyone that weren't weren't really supportive of what Uh, you were doing? There probably were. We were all so young and enthusiastic and idealistic that nothing really stood in our way. It was a remarkable time. There was so much that took place. It's incredible. Mm. Well, look, moving on to the next song, you've brought in a, a classic. Really, it's "My Island Home" by Christiano. Why, why have you chosen this song? What does it mean to you? Well, I really like Christine. She is a very, very intelligent, um, confident woman. And she's had her ups and downs in life, life like all of us. And I really like the song because it just is a, you know, a Torres Strait Islander woman um, singing about being a saltwater person and what land and what country means to her and what identity um, is also about. And um, it's a song of invitation to the rest of Australia.
This is Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today is the first Aboriginal woman to serve in the House of Representatives, Federal Labor MP Linda Burney. Now, speaking of politics, how the hell did you end up making the first steps into politics? Because it's a weird, it is a weird world, if we're going to be honest about well, it. Well, you know, I think um, the late Chicka Dixon um, said, well, boy, being born black is being born political. Yeah, well, yeah. And obviously um, working in the Aboriginal space, as I did for so long, um, was really a very political exercise. I mean, I was a member of a number of councils, including the Board of SBS, um, New South Wales Board of Studies, New South Wales Anti-Discrimination Board, National Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation, and the list goes on. And you interfaced a lot with politicians... Um, political parties, the community, uh, uh, people from various professions, and you became confident in your view and you learnt your craft and you learnt it well and there were some hard bloody lessons, let me tell you. <laughs> I can bet. Um, and I think the thing that strikes me about going into mainstream politics is that it's not as mysterious as people think it is. I think, in, I think, in what way? I think politicians and I think the 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 sort of gig around it is is sort of mysterious to people. Um, you know, how do you get there? How do you become a politician? What do you do? Um, all of these things, and somehow or other, you're 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 a race apart. And what people need to understand is that politicians, as I hope. People are listening to us and coming to understand and people just like everyone else with the same trials and tribulations in life, but you do something that um, is a very serious endeavour and that is that you make decisions and those decisions become the law and those laws affect every single person's life. And that's the seriousness that you understand when you become a Member of Parliament. And it's also incredibly humbling, um, you know, 100,000 people, 130,000 people put their faith in you mm. every mm. three or four years to carry their aspirations, their loves, their hopes into the parliament. That's your first responsibility. Um, and the th- three things that motivated me, and not in any particular order, was, of course, my Aboriginality. Um, you know, Parliament's supposed to reflect the people you make decisions on behalf of, and they don't. Yeah. Um, there were no Aboriginal people, or virtually no Aboriginal people, very few, very few women. And the fact that I'd spent my life pursuing the, uh, the goals of truth and social justice were really the foundations that I took into the Parliament with me. On a side note to that, though, like, was your family ever very political and what did they think of you going into politics? Well, no, they weren't political. Um, you know, the... the um, well, it depends what you mean by political, really. Well, just would, they, like, did, would have they thought it was a bizarre thing? That, were they like, what are you doing, Linda? Why are you going into politics? Um, or were they like, oh, I get that. That's understandable. No, I think most people saw it as a natural progression mm. for me. Um, and, of course, I was very cognizant of the fact and very clear that I didn't want to be pigeonholed as the Aboriginal member. Mm, yeah. Um, and I also understood that when you sit in the House of Representatives or the Legislative Assembly, as it was in New South Wales, firstly, you are representing a, a, a geographic area of, uh, of New South Wales or Australia and that's who your first responsibility is to but your Aboriginality is your core it's who you are so that travels with you and informs the way in which you conduct yourself um, in many ways but also informs the way in which you make decisions and how you come to conclusions um, is very much informed by who you are and of course that's a, an Aboriginal woman I will say, I think that of of all the politicians we've had on the show, I think you've given it the best pitch. You've made it sound <laughs> the most normal. Uh, when, I, like you said, people don't perceive it as being normal. They see it as being this wild world that we 
can't possibly connect to. And but mm. you you have humanized it, Linda. So I appreciate that. Hopefully, there's well, some I mean, I, young I budding polys out there. Good. I mean, <laughs> the thing that people see, of course, on telly at night is question time, mm. and that is pure theatre. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's there to get that grab in the evening. Um, the government never answers the questions you ask them, but um, <laughs> but it's also much of what goes on in the parliament, everyone agrees with. Yeah. It's not all disputed. Disputed. Now, looking into the music again, we've got a song here, Accidentally Like a Martyr by Warren Zevon. I have no idea what this Zevon. song is. Zevon. Well, tell us about <laughs> this track. You're way too I've not, young. I've, is that what it is? Oh, God. I hate <laughs> I it. My age, it gets me sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> You've got to get into Warren Zevon. Okay. All right. Tell us why. Tell us why. Warren Zevon is no longer with us. But the reason I've chosen this song is that it's one of my favourite all-time songs. It's an absolutely beautiful love song with the rough edge that Warren Zevon's songs have. Um, you know that song, Werewolves of London? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's Warren Zevon. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and this song is the song that I played over and over and over and over again uh, when my husband died oh. um, because it just put me in mind of him and our relationship and um, the the passion and the the strength and the um, the challenges of what was a great love. sun refused to shine Never thought I'd have to pay so dearly for what was already mine For such a long Like a martyr The hurt gets worse And the heart gets harder We made mad love Shadow love Random love Abandoned love Accidentally Like a martyr The hurt gets worse And the heart gets harder
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today is Linda Burney, the first Aboriginal woman to serve in the House of Representatives. Now, when you were elected, there was this incredible moment when you gave your maiden speech where you were welcomed into Parliament by a beautiful and moving song sung in the public gallery by one of your friends, which we'll have a quick listen to now. It's incredibly moving, moving stuff, Linda. What, what was she sing, singing about? Um, that's um, my Wiradjuri sister, Lynette Riley. Um, she was introducing me to the parliament as a Wiradjuri woman. Now, that was an incredible moment in Australian history. The rules of the parliament are very strict. And the um, sergeant of arms and the speaker of the house gave us permission to break those rules. And the biggest breaking of those rules was Lynette singing from the public gallery because when you're in the public gallery, you are supposed to sit quietly and not make a noise, and it's very strict. So that was just remarkable. Um, And it was the first time that it ever happened, and her voice just ringing out across that chamber um, was unbelievable and in Wiradjuri because it's the kind of thing that we've seen you know in places like New Zealand sometimes but it's mm. not something we haven't seen indigenous tradition in our parliament no. so what, I mean shouldn't we be seeing more of it well that we have seen we have seen it but uh, that was we hadn't seen the singing I mean no. when Nova Paris the first Aboriginal woman was elected to the parliament when she spoke she was she was danced in um, she wore ochre mm. Um, when Malandiria McCarthy gave her speech, um, she had um, she had um, things from her country. Uh, when Ken Wyatt gave his speech, he wore a cloak, and of course I had a cloak as well, which had been um, pa- which had been made by Lynette, which depicted my personal totem and my story, and that was pretty remarkable. How was what was the effect on you know some of the other parliamentarians you know some of the other members well, of parliament? Well, I think the effect was not just on parliamentarians; it was on um, on the country, and uh, it went very much international. There were millions of of um, of hits on the clip of Lynette singing, millions from across the world. Um, and what people have said to me is that it meant so much to them. Um, it was emotional, it was beautiful, and the singing um, touched them. And they're both sides of Parliament saying that to me, and that they'd never seen anything in that Parliament like it before. It really was incredible, yeah, wasn't it? It was. I mean, um, when you stepped into Parliament as well, like you, you're representing a couple of different minority groups. I mean, have you faced any challenges in, in Parliament that you would relate specifically to your Indigenous heritage, or is you? Oh, there there have been um, absolutely. Um, what sort of things? Oh, just you know, um, <coughs> I remember in the New South Wales Parliament, Barry O'Farrell um, in Question Time saying something about me that implied that the only reason I'd gotten to where I was was because of my Aboriginality, not because of my skill. Wow. Um, I think he regrets saying that. I hope so. I I have quite a good relationship with Barry. Um, And there have been times of similar um, experiences, but not regularly. And I have to say that I wouldn't put up with it anyway. Yeah. And what about then... (coughs) On the other side of the minority group, as a woman, are there any specific challenges you think that women face in Parliament? Oh, I think there are, absolutely. Um, um, But, you know, you are judged by different standards as a woman. I mean, look at what happened to Julia Gillard. She was judged as much by um, for her um, decisiveness and intelligence as her clothes and her looks. Mm. Um, And I think that's, that's... really unfortunate but but it does happen 
you know, commentary on clothes and looks and um, you'd feel like you have to be totally prepared and work twice as hard sometimes. It's insane stuff, isn't it? Well, look, moving now onto the music again, you want to play something from Dr. G Yinapingu. Do you have any preference or are we just going to select that randomly? I just think that, I mean, his voice is the voice of an angel. So yeah. as long as it's in language, um, because that's the real gift that he's left us. And the irony and the tragedy of him dying so young is a real statement on the um, on where the social justice situation is for Aboriginal people. And we can talk about symbols, we can talk about, um, you know, really positive things, but at the end of the day, the incarceration rates, the mortality rates, the fact that this man that's saying for presidents and queens died at you know, 40, 46 of end-stage end renal failure... You got to ask how that happens. Mm. I mean, the other, the I've just I've I went to Gama, mm -hmm. the Gama Festival this year, and of course that's the um, that's Mr G Unipingu's clan, and there was great ceremony about him up there. Um, but the point that was made is that he communicated with the most remarkable voice to the world in a language that most people didn't understand, and that's. That's just also the the reason I wanted to play one of his songs today. This is Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today is the first Aboriginal woman to serve in the House of Representatives, Federal Labor MP Linda Burney. Now, obviously there's been a lot of talk happening recently about changing the date of Australia Day. I mean, for you, tell me a bit about the importance of why it needs to be changed or why something different needs to happen on that date. Well, I've advocated a couple of things. Firstly is that there needs to be a national public holiday um, not the 26th of January, but a national public holiday to recognise, to celebrate, to um, embrace, to understand Aboriginal people and Aboriginal culture. Um, and also, of course, the story 
and the truth about the Australian Australia's history. I don't think uh, the 26th of January or Australia Day should necessarily be changed. There are a lot of people that put a lot of stock in that day. But what this conversation is about is that the 26th of January, um, Australia, the date of Australia Day has been changed several times anyhow, mm-hmm. and the 26th of January marks the day uh, that... that um, that settlement, you know, that, that was the beginning of the end for Aboriginal people in, in many ways. Oh, but the beginning of the end is a wrong statement, but marked the beginning of colonisation and invasion and it's, uh, it's a day we recognise our survival and it's called Invasion Day. It's not yeah. Australia Day for everyone. Yeah. So there are those issues. Um, but I also am sensible enough to think that you know, that is an important day for a lot of people. And I'm not advocating a change to that date. And I think that Australia Day ceremonies, formal ones now, do recognise the Aboriginal story a lot more than what they used to. But it is not a unifying day. There needs to be another day that is um, a day that all of Australia comes together because... It's recognising truth and Aboriginality. What do you reckon about May 8, Mate Day? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lots, of, lots <laughs> of opportunities. But, you know, I can hear the business business chamber screaming about productivity. But anyway, <laughs> that's, that's what I think should yeah. happen. And another issue that's come up recently is, um, you know, in light of what's been happening in the States is, is monuments and place names named after people like Governor Macquarie who were known to um, have had a hand in, in Indigenous slavery and killing Indigenous Australians. Do you think that those monuments should be ripped down or do you think that we should have kind of the representation of both sides of the history and what happened? What do you think about that I don't option? think those monuments should be ripped down. Um, but I do think that the um, plaques that go with those monuments should be truthful and reflect the... Um, um, the full context of Cook and Macquarie and whoever else. But, you know, you go around this country um, and there are so many um, plaques and monuments that celebrate, you know, white Australian explorers and figures in history, but there is almost nothing that commemorates the Aboriginal story. I mean, you know... Is a suburb called Barangaroo really honouring Barangaroo? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, I don't know how many people that are listening have ever been to the Mile Creek Memorial site, but Mile Creek was a massacre. It was the only or the first time that white men were actually punished for killing Aboriginal people out near Bingra. And there's been a, um, a memorial erected there. It's the most beautiful peaceful, healing place. But that's the only one that I can think of. And there Mm. were hundreds of massacres. You know, why isn't there something that commemorates Pemulwuy and Sydney? Mm. Or Mm. Tedbury, his son? It's definitely a debate worth having, that's for sure. And that's what what I'm saying. And then why, why isn't there something in the National Museum that commemorates our wars? And I love that place. But maybe we'll get to a place where the the land wars of this country are recognised and commemorated. Now, speaking of music <coughs> that represents a significant piece of history, the next song you've chosen for us is uh, from Little Things, Big Things Grow by Kev Carmody and Paul Kelly. I mean, perfect segue again. Why, why for you? What does this song mean to you? <laughs> um, this song means an awful lot. Um, I think it is one of those anthem songs for our, for this country. It represents that incredible story of Vincent Lengiari and the Gurindji and the amazing role they played in the 60s, the walk-off of, of um, the walk-off and setting up camp to demand equal wages and equal conditions for Aboriginal stockmen. And also the birth of the modern land rights movement. Um, and that famous iconic photo that we all know of Gough Whitlam p- 
pouring sand in the hand of Vincent Ligiari. Um, remarkable story of resilience, of unionism, of um, asserting uh, rights to country and of land. And um, that's what this song's about. And it's about the possibilities and the strength and the importance of the Aboriginal story in this country. Gather round people I tell you a story An eight year long story Power and pride The British Lord Festy Vincent Lingari were opposite men on opposite sides. Vestie was fat with money and muscle. Beef was his business, broad was his door. Vincent was lean, spoke very little. He had no bank balance, hard dirt was his floor. From Little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow Gurinji were working Nothing but rations Once they had gathered the wealth of the land Daily depression got tighter and tighter Gurinji decided they must make a stand They picked up their swags started off walking at Wadi Creek They sat themselves down Now it don't sound like much But it sure got tongues talking Back at the homestead And then in the town From little things Big things grow I'll double your wages Seven quid a week you have in your hand Vincent said, uh-uh, we're not talking about wages We're sitting right here till we get our land Bestie man road, bestie man thunder You don't stand a chance of a cinder in snow Vincent, if we fall, others are rising from little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Then Vincent Lingyari, he boarded an airplane, landed in Sydney, big city lights. Daily he went round, softly speaking his story. All kinds of men from all walks of life. Vincent sat down with their big politicians. This affair, they told him, it's a matter of state. Let us sort it out. Why are people hungry? Vincent said, No thanks. We know how to wait. From little things, big things grow. Then Vincent Lignari returned in an airplane back to his country once more to sit down. He told his people, let the stars keep on turning. We have friends in the south, in the cities and towns. Eight years went by, eight long years of waiting to one day a tall stranger appeared in the land. He came with lawyers, came with great ceremony, threw Vincent's fingers, poured a handful of sand. From little things, big things grow. 
story of Vincent Langari. This is the story of something much more. A power and privilege cannot move a people who know where they stand. And they stand in their long You're listening to Out of the Box and FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today on the show has been Linda Burney, the first Aboriginal woman to serve in the House of Representatives. Now, something that's very close to you, because you are the shadow minister for this portfolio, is this two-year trial that the government's just launched, um, where they've announced they're going to drug test recipients in Canterbury-Bankstown and that kind of region and area, and they're going to broaden it out to other parts of Australia, but test them for drugs like ice, ecstasy, marijuana, and those people could potentially lose their welfare payments if they get caught with these drugs in their system. What's your take on that? I think the government is trying to distract from its own problems. Uh, this drug trial, which is going to be uh, one side, as you said, in Sydney, Canterbury-Bankstown, in Logan in Queensland and in a site um, uh, near Perth is a waste of money. It is um, scientifically not proven. It has not worked in any other country and it's punitive. And that's what I find very problematic about it. People that have an addiction do not need to be punished or terrorised by Centrelink um, and be threatened with these sorts of measures. Uh, this requires a, um, a medical response, not a threat that we're going to manage your welfare payments, which means you won't be able to spend money on drugs. I mean, it's just ludicrous. Um, and we are very worried that this will push very marginalised people into homelessness into um, potentially crime um, and into further poverty. So Labor is not supporting either any of these trials um, and the government knows because every single medical expert, addiction expert and community group have said don't do this. If you're going to spend this money, put it into treatment options, put it into uh, where it's going to mean something for people to get better not punish them by threatening them with their welfare payments. Would there be a way of, of doing that, I guess, without spending too much money? Because I think like a lot of the issue around this is that people are worried about settling money and, and people's taxpayer funds being <coughs> spent on drugs by welfare recipients. Like, How do you combat that? Well, um, that's true. And uh, part of the reason the government has, I think, embarked on this is because they've made a political decision that um, people are not going to be worried about um, welfare recipients getting some sort of punishment and I find that unacceptable as well. So if the government were genuine about addressing these issues they wouldn't be doing it by way of randomly selecting people on New Start and Youth Allowance um, without any evidence, without any proof that those people are um, are somehow using their Centrelink money to buy drugs um, and then um, saying, well, we're going to get you treatment and not put any more money into treatment. Yeah, it's a sad thing, isn't it, really? Because you can imagine that it, that it will disproportionately affect a lot of young people as well if they're targeting New Start allowance, right? It is going to affect young people. It's New Start and it's Youth Allowance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, the two, um, they're the two categories that are going to be uh, focused on. And the government also told us in Senate estimates that they were going to use a very different method of choosing the sites than what they've used. Yeah. I think they have made it, they have just said, well, 
you know, these areas are, well, they're all labour areas, which is interesting. <laughs> um, but um, I think it's just stigmatising those areas. I mean, if you go to Canterbury, Bankstown now, you know, during the, during the um, bad days in the 90s of the flood of heroin into there, it was bad. But people have worked hard. Mm. There are communities, there are families, there are, it's vibrant. Um, and we do know that the trial that they did in New Zealand, they tested 8,000 welfare recipients and 22 people out of that 8,000 proved to have drug in, drugs in their system. <laughs> Yeah. Tell me that's flawed, not a waste it? of money. Yeah, it's definitely going to be one we'll have to follow, isn't it? I'm sure we'll hear more from it from you. But, Linda Benny, that's about all we have time for today, except for one more song. We've got one last song that you're going to play for us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. So what is the last track you got for us? It's another one from, from Emma, Emmy Lou Harris, right? This is a song called Michelangelo. And I've chosen this because it's beautiful. Uh, the imagery in it. Uh, the the um, tone, the the beauty of her voice, um, and the images that this song conjures up are magical, difficult, um, and you can almost taste it. Linda Burney, thank you so much for coming in out of the box. Thank you. Coming up next is lunch with Brady Tanner. Big thanks to my producer Nicole DePalo, and uh, I'll see you soon. Ciao.
Tears pour down. 